Chapter One, Part One of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter One, Part One. Saint Jago, Capgevert Islands. Porto Praia, Ribeira Grande, Atmospheric Dust with Infusoria, Habits of a Sea Slug and Cuttlefish, St. Paul's Rocks, Non-Volcanic, Singular Incrustations, Insects in the First Colonists of Islands, Fernando Noronha, Bahia, Burnished Rocks, Habits of a Diodon, Pelagic Confervae and Infusoria Causes of Discolored Sea After having been twice driven back by heavy southwestern gales, Her Majesty's ship Beagle, a ten-gun brig under the command of Captain Fitzroy, Royal Navy, sailed from Devonport on the 27th of December, 1831. The object of the expedition was to complete the survey of Patagonia, and Tierra del Fuego, commenced under Captain King, in 1826 to 1830, to survey the shores of Chile, Peru, and some of the islands in the Pacific, and to carry a chain of chronometrical measurements round the world. On the 6th of January we reached Tenerife, but were prevented landing by fears of our bringing the cholera. The next morning we saw the sun rise behind the rugged outline of the Grand Canary Island, and suddenly illuminate the peak of Tenerife, whilst the lower parts were veiled in fleecy clouds. This was the first of many delightful days never to be forgotten. On the 16th of January, 1832, we anchored at Porto Praia, in San Javo, the chief island of the Capa de Verde archipelago. The neighborhood of Porto Praia, viewed from the sea, wears a desolate aspect. The volcanic fires of a past age, and the scorching heat of a tropical sun, have, in most places, rendered the soil unfit for vegetation. The country rises in successive steps of table-land, interspersed with some truncate conical hills, and the horizon is bounded by an irregular chain of more lofty mountains. The scene, as beheld through the hazy atmosphere of this climate, is one of great interest. If, indeed, a person, fresh from sea, and who has just walked for the first time in a grove of coconut trees, can be a judge of anything but his own happiness, the island would generally be considered as very uninteresting, but to anyone accustomed only to an English landscape, the novel aspect of an utterly sterile land possesses a grandeur which more vegetation might spoil. A single green leaf can scarcely be discovered over wide tracts of the lava plains. Yet flocks of goats, together with a few cows, contrive to exist. It rains very seldom, but during a short period of the year heavy torrents fall, and immediately afterwards a light vegetation springs out of every crevice. This soon withers, and upon such naturally formed hay the animals live. 
it had not now rained for an entire year. When the island was discovered, the immediate neighborhood of Porto Praia was clothed with trees. I state this on the authority of Dr. E. Diefenbach in his German translation of the first edition of this journal. The reckless destruction of which is caused here, as at St. Helena and at some of the Canary Islands, almost entire sterility. The broad, flat-bottomed valleys, many of which serve during a few days only in the season as watercourses, are clothed with thickets of leafless bushes. Few living creatures inhabit these valleys. The commonest bird is a kingfisher, Dacello iagoensis, which tamely sits on the branches of the castor oil plant, and thence darts on grasshoppers and lizards. It is brightly colored, but not so beautiful as the European species. In its flight, manners, and place of habitation, which is generally in the driest valley, there is also a wide difference. One day, two of the officers and myself rode to Ribera Grande, a village a few miles eastward of Porto Praia. Until we reached the valley of St. Martin, the country presented its usual dull brown appearance. But here, a very small rill of water produces a most refreshing margin of luxuriant vegetation. In the course of an hour, we arrived at Ribera Grande, and were surprised at the sight of a large ruined fort and cathedral. This little town, before its harbor was filled up, was the principal place in the island. It now presents a melancholy but very picturesque appearance. Having procured a black padre for a guide, and a Spaniard who had served in the Peninsular War as an interpreter, we visited a collection of buildings, of which an ancient church formed the principal part. It is here the governors and captain-generals of the islands have been buried. Some of the tombstones recorded dates of the sixteenth century. The Cabo de Verde Islands were discovered in 1449. There was a tombstone of a bishop with the date of 1571, and a crest of a hand and dagger dated 1497. The heraldic ornaments were the only things in this retired place that reminded us of Europe. The church or chapel formed one side of a quadrangle, in the middle of which a large clump of bananas were growing. On another side was a hospital, containing about a dozen miserable-looking inmates. We returned to the Venda to eat our dinners. A considerable number of men, women, and children, all as black as jet, collected to watch us. Our companions were extremely merry, and everything we said or did was followed by their hearty laughter. Before leaving the town, we visited the cathedral. It does not appear so rich as the smaller church, but boasts of a little organ, which sent forth singularly inharmonious cries. We presented the black priest with a few shillings, and the Spaniard, patting him on the head, said, with much candor, he thought his color made no great difference. We then returned, as fast as the ponies would go, to Porto Praia. Another day we rode to the village of Santo Domingo, situated near the center of the island. On a small plain which we crossed, a few stunted acacias were growing. Their tops had been bent by the steady trade wind, in a singular manner, some of them even at right angles to their trunks. The direction of the branches was exactly northeast by north, 
and southwest by south, and these natural veins must indicate the prevailing direction of the force of the trade wind. The traveling had made so little impression on the barren soil that we here missed our track and took that to Fuentes. This we did not find out till we arrived there, and we were afterwards glad of our mistake. Fuentes is a pretty village, with a small stream, and everything appeared to prosper well, excepting, indeed, that which ought to do so most, its inhabitants. The black children, completely naked and looking very wretched, were carrying bundles of firewood, half as big as their own bodies. Near Fuentes we saw a large flock of guinea-fowl, probably fifty or sixty in number. They were extremely wary and could not be approached. They avoided us, like partridges on a rainy day in September, running with their heads cocked up, and, if pursued, they readily took to the wing. The scenery of Santo Domingo possesses a beauty totally unexpected, from the prevalent gloomy character of the rest of the island. The village is situated at the bottom of a valley, bounded by lofty and jagged walls of stratified lava. The black rocks afford a most striking contrast with the bright green vegetation, which follows the banks of a little stream of clear water. It happened to be a grand feast day, and the village was full of people. On our return we overtook a party of about twenty young black girls, dressed in excellent taste, their black skins and snow-white linen being set off by colored turbans and large shawls. As soon as we approached near, they suddenly all turned round, and, covering the path with their shawls, sung with great energy a wild song, beating time with their hands upon their legs. We threw them some vintains, which were received with screams of laughter, and we left them redoubling the noise of their song. One morning the view was singularly clear, the distant mountains being projected with the sharpest outline on a heavy bank of dark blue clouds. Judging from the appearance, and from similar cases in England, I suppose that the air was saturated with moisture. The fact, however, turned out quite the contrary. The hygrometer gave a difference of 29.6 degrees between the temperature of the air and the point at which dew was precipitated. This difference was nearly double that which I had observed on the previous mornings. This unusual degree of atmospheric dryness was accompanied by continual flashes of lightning. Is it not an uncommon case, thus, to find a remarkable degree of aerial transparency with such a state of weather? Generally the atmosphere is hazy, and this is caused by the falling of impalpably fine dust, which was found to have slightly injured the astronomical instruments. The morning before we anchored at Porto Praia, I collected a little packet of this brown-colored fine dust which appeared to have been filtered from the wind by the gauze of the vane at the masthead. Mr. Lyle has also given me four packets of dust which fell on a vessel a few hundred miles northward of these islands. Professor Ehrenberg finds that this dust consists in great part of infusoria, with siliceous shields, and none of the siliceous tissue of plants. I must take this opportunity of acknowledging the great kindness with which this illustrious naturalist has examined many of my specimens. I have sent, June 1845, 
a full account of the falling of this dust to the Geological Society. In five little packets, which I sent him, he has ascertained no less than sixty-seven different organic forms. The infusoria, with the exception of two marine species, are all inhabitants of fresh water. I have found no less than fifteen different accounts of dust having fallen on vessels when far out in the Atlantic. From the direction of the wind whenever it has fallen, and from its having always fallen during those months when the harmaton is known to raise clouds of dust high into the atmosphere, we may feel sure that it all comes from Africa. It is, however, a very singular fact that, although Professor Ehrenberg knows many species of infusoria peculiar to Africa, he finds none of these in the dust which I sent him. On the other hand, he finds it in two species which hitherto he knows is living only in South America. The dust falls in such quantities as to dirty everything on board, and to hurt people's eyes. Vessels have even run on shore owing to the obscurity of the atmosphere. It has often fallen on ships when several hundred, and even more than a thousand miles from the coast of Africa, and at points sixteen hundred miles distant in a north and south direction. In some dust which was collected on a vessel three hundred miles from the land, I was much surprised to find particles of stone above the thousandth of an inch square mixed with finer matter. After this fact, one need not be surprised at the diffusion of the far lighter and smaller sporules of cryptogamic plants. The geology of this island is the most interesting part of its natural history. On entering the harbor, a perfectly horizontal white band in the face of the sea cliff may be seen running for some miles along the coast, and at the height of about forty-five feet above the water. Upon examination this white stratum is found to consist of calcareous matter with numerous shells embedded, most or all of which now exist on the neighboring coast. It rests on ancient volcanic rocks, and has been covered by a stream of basalt, which must have entered the sea while the white shelly bed was lying at the bottom. It is interesting to trace the changes produced by the heat of the overlying lava on the friable mass, which in parts has been converted into a crystalline limestone, and in other parts into a compact spotted stone, where the lime has been caught up by the scoriaceous fragments of the lower surface of the stream, it is converted into groups of beautifully radiated fibers, resembling aragonite. The beds of lava rise in successive gently sloping plains towards the interior, whence the deluges of melted stone have originally proceeded. Within historical times, no signs of volcanic activity have, I believe, been manifested, in any part of St. Jago. Even the form of a crater can but rarely be discovered on the summits of the many red cindery hills. Yet the more recent streams can be distinguished on the coast, forming lines of cliffs of less height, but stretching out in advance of those belonging to an older series, the height of the cliffs thus affording a rude measure of the age of the streams. During our stay, I observe the habits of some marine animals. A large aplysia is very common. This sea slug is about five inches long, and is of a dirty yellowish color, veined with purple. 
On each side of the lower surface, or foot, there is a broad membrane, which appears sometimes to act as a ventilator, in causing a current of water to flow over the dorsal branchiae, or lungs. It feeds on the delicate seaweeds which grow among the stones in muddy and shallow water, and I found in its stomach several small pebbles, as in the gizzard of a bird. This slug, when disturbed, emits a very fine purplish-red fluid, which stains the water for the space of a foot around. By this means of defense, an acrid secretion which is spread over its body causes a sharp stinging sensation, similar to that produced by the Physalia, or Portuguese man-of-war. I was much interested, on several occasions, by watching the habits of an octopus or cuttlefish. Although common in the pools of water left by the retiring tide, these animals were not easily caught. By means of their long arms and suckers, they could drag their bodies into very narrow crevices, and, when thus fixed, it required great force to remove them. At other times they darted tail first, with the rapidity of an arrow from one side of the pool to the other, at the same instant discoloring the water with a dark chestnut-brown ink. These animals also escape detection by a very extraordinary chameleon-like power of changing their color. They appear to vary their tints according to the nature of the ground over which they pass. When in deep water, their general shade was brownish-purple, but when placed on the land, or in shallow water, this dark tint changed into one of a yellowish-green. The color, examined more carefully, was a French-gray, with numerous minute spots of bright yellow. The former of these varied in intensity, the latter entirely disappeared, and appeared again by turns. These changes were effected in such a manner that clouds, varying in tint between a hyacinth red and a chestnut brown, were continually passing over the body. So named, according to Patrick Stein's nomenclature. Any part being subjected to a slight shock of galvanism became almost black. A similar effect, but in a less degree, was produced by scratching the skin with a needle. These clouds, or blushes as they may be called, are said to be produced by the alternate expansion and contraction of minute vesicles containing variously colored fluids. See the Encyclopedia of Anatomy and Physiology, article Cephalopoda. This cuttlefish displayed its chameleon-like power both during the act of swimming and whilst remaining stationary at the bottom. I was much amused by the various arts to escape detection used by one individual, which seemed fully aware that I was watching it. Remaining for a time motionless, it would then stealthily advance an inch or two, like a cat after a mouse, sometimes changing its color. It thus proceeded, till, having gained a deeper part, it darted away, leaving a dusky train of ink, to hide the hole into which it had crawled. While looking for marine mammals, with my head about two feet above the rocky shore, I was more than once saluted by a jet of water, accompanied by a slight grating noise. At first I could not think what it was, but afterwards I found out that it was this cuttlefish, which, though concealed in a hole, thus often led me to its discovery. That it possesses the power of ejecting water there is no doubt, and it appeared to me that it could certainly take good aim by directing the tube or siphon 
on the underside of its body. From the difficulty which these animals have in carrying their heads, they cannot crawl with ease when placed on the ground. I observed that one which I kept in the cabin was slightly phosphorescent in the dark. St. Paul's Rocks In crossing the Atlantic, we hove to during the morning of February 16th, close to the island of St. Paul's. This cluster of rocks is situated in 0 degrees 58 minutes north latitude and 29 degrees 15 minutes west longitude. It is 540 miles distant from the coast of America and 350 from the island of Fernando Noronha. The highest point is only 50 feet above the level of the sea, and the entire circumference is under three-quarters of a mile. This small point rises abruptly out of the depths of the ocean. Its mineralogical constitution is not simple. In some parts the rock is of a cherty, in others of a felspathic nature, including thin veins of serpentine. It is a remarkable fact that all the many small islands lying far from any continent in the Pacific, Indian, and Atlantic Oceans, with the exception of the Seychelles, and this little point of rock are, I believe, composed either of coral or of erupted matter. The volcanic nature of these oceanic islands is evidently an extension of that law, and the effect of those same causes, whether chemical or mechanical, from which it results that a vast majority of the volcanoes now in action stand either near sea-coasts or as islands in the midst of the sea. The rocks of St. Paul appear from a distance of a brilliantly white color. This is partly owing to the dung of a vast multitude of sea-fowl, and partly to a coating of a hard, glossy substance with a pearly luster, which is intimately united to the surface of the rocks. This, when examined with a lens, is found to consist of numerous exceedingly thin layers, its total thickness being about the tenth of an inch. It contains much animal matter, and its origin, no doubt, is due to the action of the rain or spray on the birds' dung. Below some small masses of guano at Ascension, and on the Aprolios islets, I found a certain stalactic branching bodies, formed apparently in the same manner as the thin white coating on these rocks. The branching bodies, so closely resembled in general appearance, certain nullipore, a family of hard calcareous sea-plants, that in lately looking hastily over my collection I did not perceive the difference. The globular extremities of the branches are of a pearly texture, like the enamel of teeth, but so hard as just to scratch plate glass. I may here mention that on a part of the coast of Ascension, where there is a vast accumulation of shelly sand, an incrustation is deposited on the tidal rocks by the water of the sea, resembling, as represented in the woodcut, certain cryptogamic plants, marchantiae, often seen on damp walls. The surface of the fronds is beautifully glossy, and those parts formed where fully exposed to the light are of a jet-black color, but those shaded under ledges are only gray, I have shown specimens of this incrustation to several geologists, and they all thought that they were of volcanic or igneous origin. In its hardness and translucency, in its polish equal to that of the finest oliva shell, in the bad smell given out, 
and the loss of color under the blowpipe, it shows a close similarity with living seashells. Moreover, in seashells, it is known that the parts habitually covered and shaded by the mantle of the animal are of a paler color than those fully exposed to the light, just as is the case with this incrustation. When we remember that lime, either as a phosphate or carbonate, enters into the composition of the hard parts, such as bones and shells of all living animals, it is an interesting physiological fact to find substances harder than the enamel of teeth, and colored surfaces as well polished as those of a fresh shell, reformed through inorganic means from dead organic matter, mocking also, in shape, some of the lower vegetable productions. Mr. Horner and Sir David Brewster have described, in Philosophical Transactions, 1836, page 65, a singular artificial substance resembling shell. It is deposited in fine, transparent, highly polished, brown-colored laminae, possessing peculiar optical properties, on the inside of a vessel, in which cloth, first prepared with glue and then with lime, is made to revolve rapidly in water. It is much softer, more transparent, and contains more animal matter than the natural incrustation at Ascension. But we here again see the strong tendency which carbonate of lime and animal matter evince to form a solid substance allied to shell. We found on St. Paul's only two kinds of birds, the booby and the noddy. The former is a species of gannet, and the latter a tern. Both are of a tame and stupid disposition, and are so unaccustomed to visitors that I could have killed any number of them with my geological hammer. The booby lays her eggs on the bare rock, but the tern makes a very simple nest with seaweed. By the side of many of these nests a small flying fish was placed, which, I suppose, had been brought by the male bird for its partner. It was amusing to watch how quickly a large and active crab, Graspus, which inhabits the crevices of the rock, stole the fish from the side of the nest, as soon as we had disturbed the parent birds. Sir W. Simons, one of the few persons who have landed here, informs me that he saw the crabs dragging even the young birds out of their nests and devouring them. Not a single plant, not even a lichen, grows on this islet, yet it is inhabited by several insects and spiders. The following list completes, I believe, the terrestrial fauna. A fly, Ophersia, living on the booby, and a tick, which must have come here as a parasite on the birds. A small brown moth, belonging to a genus, that feeds on feathers. A beetle, Quadius, and a woodlouse from beneath the dung. And lastly, numerous spiders, which I suppose prey on these small attendants and scavengers of the waterfowl. The often repeated description of the stately palm, and other noble tropical plants, then birds, and lastly man taking possession of the coral islets, as soon as formed in the Pacific, is probably not correct. I fear it destroys the poetry of this story, that feather and dirt feeding and parasitic insects and spiders should be the first inhabitants of the newly formed oceanic land. The smallest rock in the tropical seas by giving a foundation for the growth of innumerable kinds of seaweed and compound animals, supports, likewise, a large number of fish. The sharks and the seamen in the boats maintained a constant struggle, 
which should secure the greater share of the prey caught by the fishing lines. I have heard that a rock near the Bermudas, laying many miles out at sea, and at a considerable depth, was first discovered by the circumstance of fish having been observed in the neighborhood. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by Scott Robbins